This is Oasis City Radio Music. This is Oasis City Radio Music. This is Oasis City Radio Music. Twenty-four hours a day at oasiscityradio.com. Tune in, iHeartRadio, and the Oasis City Radio app. This is Oasis City Radio music. Oasis City Radio. Pastor Bill, and welcoming all of you. Thank you for choosing Oasis City Church. So glad that you're with us, and so glad our live stream audience, thank you, our congregation, you're with us. Can we just give them a rousing, warm welcome? Thank you for tuning in. God's doing something here. I know He's doing something there, and we're glad that you're with us and part of this. Um, Today, I want to preach topically on the goodness of God, and I think there's something that we need to understand Uh, And then we're going to look at Psalm 23 exegetically for all of you that like that. And so you're getting the best of both worlds today. Before we get to Psalm, let's let's actually start in the book of James, chapter chapter 1, verse 17. Why Why don't we just read this together? It's on the screen. We're on the New American Standard. Uh, let's read the word, of the word of the Lord together, verse 17. Ready? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Why don't we say that last line together? With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, it is living, It is the person of Jesus Christ, and we ask that today your word would settle deep into our hearts. Father, prepare our hearts even now, that our hearts would be good soil, that your word would sink deep into our hearts, and that it would bear much fruit, and that it would bear fruit that remains. So, Father, I thank you that you want to do something today. Holy Spirit, have your way. We want to encounter you. We want to know the love of God. And I just don't want to talk about it, but I would like to experience it today. So, so Father, you be glorified. And I thank you where you are lifted up, you just come. So, Lord, as we talk about you and talk about your goodness, I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're just going to begin to hover and have your way, that you're going to begin to work on hearts and you're going to begin to heal hearts. And I, I see Holy Spirit even now just massaging hearts He's working on them, and if you let him, he's going to do something today. He's going to heal. So, Father, speak to our hearts, change our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen. You know, we had this phrase that we've said in church. If you've been in most any church in the, in the 20th or 21st century, you've heard this phrase, God is good. You just know it. And all the time, God is good. So, God is good. All the time, and all the time, God is good. How many of you know we can say things that we believe, but not really believe them? 
when you really believe something, you, you, your, your life backs it up, you know. Uh, uh, I, I've come to discover that in church, we often say things that we know to be true, but we don't believe them to be true because our actions don't back up our beliefs. So therefore, the takeaway is, is we really don't believe it, believe it. We think it, but we don't believe it. And, you know, uh, there are certain things that, that you don't have to convince me of. I, I know. I know that I know. And if, and if you talk to me about it or bring up the topic, I, I can probably convince you of this truth as well. Since we're talking about hockey, uh, 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 Sidney Crosby is the greatest hockey player in the world, you know? Uh, since you brought it up, I mean, I mean, you know, you know, th- th- this guy can 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 take the puck, which which happens to be an, a, a round disc that's not perfect in shape, like it's got corners and edges, right, right, like a round disc, the biscuit, and he can and he can knock it out of the middle of the air to himself, and then hit it in with his stick while moving full speed across the ice with three 200-pound men trying to knock him down. He's that good. He, he had a goal last week where he takes the puck that was passed to him while he's moving, again, full speed down the ice, right? And it was tipped about two feet in front of him. So imagine the timing, moving full speed one direction, someone passing you this bouncing piece of hard rubber and and it you think it's bouncing but again it's not bouncing straight all right this is not a bowling ball right this is a puck it's bouncing this way and even in the midst of it bouncing it's tipped so it changes direction not two feet from him and yet he's quick enough to adjust his stick and not just adjust it but catch the puck on this and throw it in the back of the net before the washington capitals even know i hit them He's, he's that good. And you don't have to convince me of his goodness. I could, I could wax eloquently, maybe not so eloquently, but about his goodness because I've experienced it and I know it to be true. Now, there may be some of you here who disagree with me. And we could probably have a little bit of a debate, but, but it's something that we are passionate about and we know because we've experienced it. We've seen it. We understand it. I want to talk to you today about the goodness of God. We, we say that God is good, but I believe that we don't always truly, really believe it. But I'm going to do my best today to help you understand it. And if you help me, we're going to get somewhere. Are you ready? Are you ready? Psalm 23. I, I can't start there. Let's go to, let's go to Genesis. Here's, the, here's, here's why. Here's why. I grew up in church, and I had this understanding from even in uh, Sunday school that Adam and Eve that I saw on the felt board, you know, Eve ate the apple, handed the apple to Adam, Adam ate the apple, the snake was in the middle of them, and God kicked them out of the garden, and then the angel was there to keep them out. And I had this understanding my whole entire life of who God was and how he responded to our actions. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I, I was enlightened to the truth of the scripture. How many of you know you can, you can know scripture, but you read it again? And when the author of the scripture speaks to you, you recognize that, wait a minute, 
There's something more here. And so we, we often do ourselves a disservice by thinking we understand truths and stories, but, but, but we really haven't looked at it. And, and one day, a few years ago, I really looked at the book of Genesis, and this is what I discovered. Genesis chapter 1 uh, tells the story of creation, right? And in verse 26, God says this, let us make man in our image. Okay, this isn't in the notes. We're just, we're just working here, all right? Uh, let us make man in our image in 26. And then verse 27 says this, God created man in his own image, and then just to make sure we got it, he repeats himself. And he says, in the image of God, he created him. So he wanted to make sure that we got the point that God created man in the image of God. Understand, here's God. He creates this wonderful garden, this world with beautiful things to be explored and and to discover. And all of a sudden he realizes when he looks around at all the animals and the beautiful things he's created, there's no one there with, with a soul. There's no one there with intelligence. There's no one that he can have conversation with. And I just imagine God stepping back and he's talking to Jesus. And Holy Spirit. And he says, Holy Spirit, are you done hovering? And Holy Spirit says, yes. And, 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 and he says, now what are we going to do? We've created these things, but yet, but yet you, 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 you guys are great. But what if we created someone that was like us? What if we created someone that, that, could, that could think and choose and make decisions and and what if someone wanted to have a relationship with us and we could talk to them and so god reaches down and he creates adam out of dust and and he creates this living being and it's he's like god a reflection of who god the father the son and the holy spirit is and that's adam and yet adam and eve make the greatest mistake and they sin and I can't imagine how God must have felt. How many of you know God has emotions? God has emotions. Maybe you didn't think that. It's all in the scripture. God feels. He expresses himself. He, he's emotions. He's created you to be an emotional being. You just shouldn't make all of your decisions on your emotions. But he's created you to be an emotional being, to feel, to experience. And we've got to experience him today. And so... And so Adam and Eve mess up, they sin, and, and, and here's what I always thought, that, that God kicked them out of the garden because they messed up. But I want you to look at this because this is, this is scripture. This is not some preacher's point that he thinks is good. This is not some new revelation. Do you hear me? This is word of God. Look, look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse, verse 22 in Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. This is what God says. He says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. So he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, and God says, and he knows good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and live forever. So God is looking at it and seeing he ate from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's also this other tree that is, that is the tree of eternal life. And so God is saying they ate from this tree, but if they eat from this other tree, it could get worse. And so this is what the scripture says. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. Why? He sent him out to cultivate the ground which he was taken from. So God drove him out in in the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim, the flaming sword, which turned in every direction. Why? To guard the way to the tree of life. Here's the understanding that changed how I saw and experienced God. Recognize that Genesis is the beginning. So it's revealing the beginning of God, who he really is. God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, not to punish him, but to protect him. 
if Adam and Eve, after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, had eaten of the tree of life, they would have forever been condemned in their sin. It, it says it right here. God says he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and live forever. So I've got to intervene. I've got to do something out of the goodness of my heart, out of my protection for Adam and Eve. I must intervene so that I can guard the way so they don't eat from the tree of life so that there can be redemption. This fundamentally changed the way that I saw God. Because God led Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his goodness. Not out of punishment. And we must understand that at the very core of who God is, God is good. At the very central of God's character, of his identity, of everything that God is and everything that he represents, God is good. It's who he is. He is good before he is anything else. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them as good. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that he created everything as good, but when he created man, he said it's very good. So this is who God is, and it's who God created Adam and Eve to be. So with that understanding in mind that God is really, really, really good, look at your neighbor and say he's really, really good. Let's open up Psalm chapter 23 and look, and look here. Psalm chapter 23. Looking at Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, the first thing that we see is this, is that his goodness is seen in providing for us. God's goodness is seen in provision. His goodness is seen in provision. He provided a way of escape for Adam and Eve. He was providing. Let's look at it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He said this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You see, David was prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus came about the good shepherd. When he said, the Lord is my shepherd, David was relating to God in a way that he knew and understood, and yet he was prophesying of the coming Jesus, saying, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So Psalm 23 opens up, and it's showing God as a shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? It's really fascinating to me. The first thing it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know that everything that we have need of is found in him? The good shepherd. Everything we need. There is nothing that we need that isn't found in him. And since it's found in him and he's our father, we have access to it. So we have everything that we need. You have everything that you need. There is nothing that you want that you don't already have. It's found in him. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. I find it interesting that he said he makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, if I was a sheep, I saw green pastures, I'd lay myself down. 
You know, I mean, that's what sheep do, right? A couple of weeks ago, Tara was gone, and I, I had this wonderful opportunity to watch the three kids by myself and get them off to school and, you know, do the regular routine. And, and uh, it makes me so amazed at how single parents do life. I mean, I am in awe. You have a standing ovation from me, from, from us. Um, it was just three days, you know, and so, so it was the end of the second or third day, and, and the kids were quite tired, probably because I let them stay up too late and all of that. But, uh, you know, I said it was time for bed, and, and my youngest, the girl, she's, she's only four, and so when I said it's time for bed, the boys who are 8 and 11, they went on upstairs to their rooms to get ready for bed. Uh, but the youngest four, when I said those magic words, it's time for bed, she looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. Like she'd never heard those words before in her life, that it was time for bed. Her response was one as if I had asked her or, or, or simply chopped off her finger. She lost it. I mean completely lost it. It's time for bed. She lost it. She loses it in such a way that she just drops to the floor. And so, anybody have strong children? Any of you, any of you were a strong child? And so, you know, the, the scripture tells us to not argue with a fool. And sometimes children act like fools. So the best thing to do is simply leave them in their foolishness and, and go on about your way. So I said, okay. I said, I'll carry you upstairs. If you come to me, stand up and I'll, and I'll carry you upstairs. Or you can walk upstairs on your own if you want to stay there. So she looks up at me and decides to double down. She's not, she's not getting up. So she just takes it to a different level of hysteria and uh, screaming. So I just go on upstairs and I start to put the boys to bed because she's downstairs and I'm not going to carry her up, up the stairs. It's about two minutes later. She stops crying and I hear feet up the stairs. And as I'm tucking the boys into bed, I hear this. You're a bad daddy. You're a bad daddy. You're a bad daddy. Over and over and over and over again. As she begrudgingly trudges up the stairs. I know that's so far-fetched you can't imagine it because she's a little angel here at church. But it's remarkable because the boys just lose it and start laughing. I mean, they're laughing hysterically, which of course causes her to continue her, her tirade. And the funny thing to me was that, that, that my 8-year-old and my 11-year-old both understood the foolishness in her actions, that dad was simply trying to get her to bed, but she didn't want to go. Because you see, to my 4-year-old, my goodness is based on her current circumstances. And if I let her stay up and watch a movie or do whatever she wants to do, I'm good. But if I ask her to do something that she doesn't want to do in the moment, even though it's good for her, it changes who I am to her. And this is who we are. You know, when we say we have to mature as believers, we, we must get past the place where we're the four-year-old throwing the tantrum. When, when God is saying, I'm trying to let you lie down in green pastures. I'm trying to say, take a break. You need a day of rest. I'm trying to say, I know something that's good for you. I'm trying to say, let me lead you in paths of righteousness. Let me, let me lead you along quiet waters, a place of rest and a place of provision, a place that you need. But we so often go along kicking and screaming and saying, God, there's no way you're good. 
remarkable thing to me, the thing that stood out to the most to me was the, was the, was the perspective that my boys had at just a slightly older age. In their maturity, her tantrum was hysterical because they understood, they understand the benefit of the breast. Now, my 11-year-old, who's probably getting a testosterone boost, it understands the idea of rest even more than my 8-year-old. He's the first to bed because he recognizes he needs it. And it's a picture of who we are. I often look around and I think, if only you could see yourself willowing in your, in your tirade when God is saying, I have something good for you. And so it's why it says he has to make us lie down. Because sometimes we go kicking and screaming. And he says, listen, it's time for bed. You need to take a break. So we see this in the scripture in Psalm 23 that God, his goodness is seen in his provision. He, he leads us to a place of nourishment. He feeds us on his word. He, he, he brings us to a place where we're well fed. We, we find that he leads us to places of rest. And for some of you, that's the word of the Lord today. Take a day off. Let the Lord lead you to a place of rest, okay? I didn't say take, don't come to church, did I? I think some of you heard that. When I said take a day of rest, I said don't come to church. No, I said take a day of rest, a Sabbath, spend time in the presence of the Lord. He, he leads, his, his provision is seen as rest and his provision is seen in guidance. When we allow him to, he guides us, he leads us, he takes us by the hand down paths of righteousness. Why? For his glory. The path that you're on has a purpose, and it's his glory. His glory. Not your idea, his glory. That'll get you. Verse 4 shows us that his goodness is felt in protection. The goodness of God is found in protection when in Psalm 23 it says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. I've learned in life that the valleys are a necessary season in, in our lives. As a shepherd, David understood that in one season, you can take the sheep to higher ground. And they can feed in the mountains and they can do all this stuff where the predators can't go. But yet, when the weather turns... The sheep must be led down into the valley where there's still food and nourishment for them. And it's called the valley of the shadow of death because if you've watched National Geographic, you understand that these watering holes and these oasis places are places of sustenance and life and they're also places of, of death. They're the place where the enemy likes to hang out like a roaring lion. They're the place where... where where danger can be around the corner. But they're the place where the enemy wants us to dwell in fear. And even though we walk through these seasons, which I believe are necessary seasons for us to walk through, there's a promise. And the promise is this, is that you will fear no evil. No evil. Why? Why can we not fear? Because God is with us. Recognize that, that the greatest enemy to you in your season of valley, in your season of, of, of being concerned in the place of the shadow of death, the greatest enemy that you have to fight is fear. 
The enemy wants to trap you in fear. He wants to get you to a place because fear immobilizes you. Fear gets you to a place where you're, you're afraid to take a step, where you're afraid to move. But God has given us a promise that you will fear no evil because I'm with you. No matter what season you've been through, I assure you God has been with you every single step of the way. And even in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. He's with you. He's with you and he gives us a promise that he will never, ever leave us. Max Lucado says this. He says, in God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. We know this to be the truth in, in, in Romans 8, that God works all things together for good. And so we understand that he worked through every season to bring good. But you see, it doesn't mean that every situation is good. It means that God works it out for good. It's easy to get caught up in the things that you, the questions that you don't have answers to. Why did this happen? God, this can't be good. If you're good, this isn't good. Why did this happen? And yet what we have to find in our place of rest is that God is good all the time. And all the time. God is good. So that statement becomes something that we believe on in faith, where we stand upon it. It's easy to believe that your dad is good when he lets you stay up and watch movies and eat popcorn. But when he says, follow me, it's time for a new season, we throw a fit and we don't see his goodness. But God is saying, I'm leading you in paths of righteousness, and I assure you this, is that I will work it out for good. It will be worked out for good. Here's what I know, is, is I know that, that the, the most difficult seasons that you've ever been through in your life is your greatest testimony. The ugliest scar that you have received from the enemy is your greatest trophy to the Lord. It testifies of his goodness. It, it testifies of his faithfulness. And it says that no matter what, I know that God was with me. His track record is good. It's a hundred percent. He has never left. He has never left. He has never, never left. And so God gives us a promise that he's with us. He protects us. He's, he's with us through the valley of the shadow of death because he's with me. And here's what I want us to understand about God's protection is this. Not only is God big enough to protect you, he's good enough to protect you. When we look at the Lord and we know that God is big and he's powerful and he's, he's omnipresent, he's, he's everything that we need, we look at him and we say, God, I know you're big enough to protect me. But yet he's good enough to protect you. For some of us, it's a revelation today. We know God's powerful. We know he can do it. We know he's capable. But here's the truth. His heart is this, is that in his goodness, he protects you. He cares for you. There's no place that you can go that he is not there right beside you. And so his goodness reveals his protection. Finally, in, in Psalm 23, verse 5, it says this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. 
My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the, 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 the scene changes. It shifts from David seeing God as a good shepherd to David seeing the Father as a host. As someone inviting him to a dinner. And he says, this is what the picture of Father God. He says, come set at the table even in the presence of your enemies. So he says, I know you've just walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, as a matter of fact, your enemies still surround you. But what does he do? He doesn't just say, I'm with you. It says, he prepares a table before you in the midst of your enemies. There's there's this understanding that it's going from knowing God and his provision that he's provided for us, knowing God as a protector, one who watches out for us, and now all of a sudden we're understanding and knowing God in his presence. The goodness of God, the goodness of God is known in his presence. This is the place that we must get to, that we must arrive at, where we understand that in the presence of God, there's goodness. And God's presence is with us no matter where we are. So when we walk through the valley, he didn't leave us. And when we sit at a table, when all the enemies surround us, we recognize this. God set the table. He's all around. This was his idea. This was his thought. This was his plan all along that he said, I'm going to prepare a table before you in the middle of your enemies. Then he says this, he says, you anointed my head with oil. There's an anointing. There's a, there's, it speaks to refreshing. Uh, that my cup overflows. He says this line, surely goodness and loving kindness or goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And as you know, if your, your Bible has a number there beside the word surely, it says only. In Hebrew, it means only goodness and loving kindness. And I, this is something that I've struggled with because God, how does only goodness and loving kindness follow me? Because God, I've been through stuff and it sure is, wasn't good. I've been through stuff and it sure wasn't mercy. How can only goodness and mercy follow me? What in the world was David talking about? God, David must have thought only goodness followed him, but he, theologians tell us that he was probably only 16 or 17 when he wrote this. This was a, a psalm from in the, in the fields. It was before he ever fought anybody. It was before he ever went through stuff. It was before he was ever anointed king and then given a promise and then had to wait for his promise. It was before he had to ever, ever honor the king, honor the guy that was, that was in charge of him who was evil. And yet he honored him throughout the whole way. It was before he ever walked through any of the situations. We had an opportunity to fail and the whole entire nation see him fail. But he thought he knew his goodness. And I don't understand how we can look at that and say, God, how does only goodness and mercy follow you? And then I remember there was, there was this guy named Moses. And Moses was one that he had his own, he had his own deal with God. You know, when you, when you look at the Old Testament, we, we talk about Old Covenant. We talk about, and it's so true, there, there is, there's the law and there's all these things. But then you look at people like Moses and, and David and, and Abraham, and they had these covenants with God that superseded everything else that was around them. And Moses was one of those, as a leader, he would walk into the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord would fall and he would be in the midst of it. 
And he would go up to the mountain and the glory of the Lord would come like a cloud and it would surround him. And, 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 and when he came down, his face shone. And, and so he, he was one that experienced God in a way that, that, that the Israelites couldn't. They stood back at a distance on another mountain and had to stand and watch. But Moses said this to God. He said, God, show me your face. Exodus 33, he talks about it. God, show me your face. Show me your glory. See, Moses was one that experienced God in a way that nobody else in the entire nation experienced. No one had, had, had experienced God like Moses did for hundreds of years. And yet Moses, in experiencing and encountering God, knew that there was more. He knew that there was more to God than just the cloud. There was more to God than the sacrifices. There was more to God. He said, God, show me your face. When he knew that if he saw the face of God, he would die. But he said, God, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And so God tells him, Moses, you can't see my face, but this is what I'll do. He says, come with me and I'll hide, hide you in a cave. Come with me up to the mountain and I'm going to tuck you around the corner in a dark place. And, and I'm going to hide you in a cave and I'm going to put my hand over your eyes. And I'm going to allow myself to pass before you. And after I pass by you, I'm going to remove my hand. And what you'll see is my backside. And when you see my backside, you'll see my goodness. See, Moses wanted to see the face of God. But God said, Moses, more than anything, you need to know that I'm good. You need to know that it's my nature, that it's who I am, that I am good, that I'm good, that I'm good, that I'm good, that I'm good. You must know and see my goodness. And so, David must have heard stories because he understood that somewhere God was good. He understood somewhere that there was a goodness of God that you could see, that you could experience. And what he realized was this, was that when God passed by Moses, holding his hand over his face while he was hiding in the cave, Moses recognized that wherever God went, goodness dwelt he saw where God had been and he saw his goodness he saw that God was there and he saw that it was good God created and he said it's good he created and he said it's good he created and he said it's good David understood that the very heart the very identity of God was that he was good but how does goodness follow David we know that it follows God but how does it follow follow David and then we just have to look at Genesis and see that we were made in the image and in the likeness of God and when he created us he called us good and very good so here's the picture here's the revelation that David understood David understood this he understood goodness and mercy could follow him because it was who he was. It was who God created him to be. And so when David began to walk, as he was tending sheep, he would look around him and he would see goodness. He would see goodness. And as he tended the sheep and as he went to his father's house and then as he went and met Goliath, he looked around and he saw goodness 
Everywhere that David went, he saw goodness because he was walking in who God called him to be. He was stepping into what he was, who God had made him. He saw good. And he was like Peter Pan finding his shadow. He looked around and he said, there's my shadow. And he tried to catch it, but he couldn't catch it. But it followed him everywhere that he went. And he realized that God's goodness is a shadow that overwhelms you. And wherever you go, you can't get away from his goodness. You can't get away from who he's made you to be. Because you're made and you're good. It's who you are. So what does your family look like when it looks like it's a mess? And it's tumultuous. But when you step into the room, you say, wait, goodness is here. Because I'm here. Goodness follows me. And when you step into your workplace and you say, I'm living in fear. I'm afraid of what might happen, of who they're laying off or what might be going on. You step into a place and you say, but wait a minute. Goodness is here because I am here. You step into any situation that you're going through, even in the valley of the shadow of death. You realize not only is God walking with you, that he's right beside you. But you recognize because he lives in you, that goodness is there. And so when we say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, we recognize that God is good all the time because he lives in us. And it means we are good. You see, we don't have to earn it. We don't deserve it. We become righteousness when we're forgiven. And it's not based upon your your actions or your mess-ups or your mistakes or how good you are. You can't ever get to the place where you earn a right where you could say, now goodness follows me because I've been good enough. In the middle of your mess, goodness follows you. In the middle of your brokenness, goodness follows you. In the middle of every situation, His goodness undergirds you because He's with you. And here's a picture that I saw the Lord doing today. I saw a picture of a mirror. You know, the rearview mirrors. Any of you have one like this that, that came, came off, you know? I had a car that had more than one missing mirror at one point. You know, these hang in your, they're called the rearview mirror. And for many of us, when we look into the rearview mirror, we don't see goodness. For many of us, when we look in the mirror, we see pain hurt and abandonment and fear loneliness we don't see God a couple of years ago I, I bought my first new car and I don't forget driving the first night that I was in it and one of these cars came up behind me you know with those LED lights those blue ones that blind you and I'll never forget when the lights hit the rearview mirror, the mirror shifted. And what was blinding me caused the mirror and the technology that's in it to shift and go into this night mode where rather than being blinded, I could all of a sudden see. It didn't blind me anymore. It's the picture of what God wants to do in your life now. When you allow the light of God to shine in your life, when you look in the mirror, you don't see the situation, you don't see the circumstance, but you see his goodness. Today, God 
He's given you a new mirror. It comes with this little phrase on the mirror. It says this, objects in mirror are gooder than they appear. Because he's gooder than you think. His goodness, his mercy, he's God. Today he wants to give you a brand new mirror.